0: From Muhlenberg College, this is 2400 CHU. I'm Tammy Katsoff, and in each episode of this podcast, I talk to one Muhlenberg graduate about their current work and the industry in which that work is done. For this episode, I spoke with Matthew Bourbeau, class of 1998, who is a principal scientist in the Discovery Chemistry Group at the biotechnology company Amgen. I sat down with Dr. Bourbeau in the George Rathman Research Labs at Amgen's campus in Thousand Oaks, California. And as I do with all of these interviews, I began the conversation by asking how and when he became interested in his occupation.
1: That's a good story. So I, I didn't start at Muhlenberg thinking I was going to be a principal scientist at Amgen. I started at Muhlenberg thinking I was going to be a doctor. Ah. You know, it's a common theme. Those of us that choose the path of organic and medicinal chemistry didn't necessarily plan on going there initially. It sort of found us. So in my case, the start of finding it was in um, second-year organic chemistry. The the teacher at the time is a a professor. He's uh, regrettably deceased uh, at this point. His name was uh, Charles Russell, really outstanding educator, certainly one of the best I've come across in my career, and just kind of got hooked on organic chemistry. You know, this is a class that most people dread. I enjoyed it. Again, this is a common thing for people that choose this in their career, like you go into your colleagues, why do you find this so challenging? This is pretty straightforward. It's logical. And so, you know, after a year of that, I decided that it might want to be something I looked into a little more closely because it was a subject that really resonated with me at the time. So I started doing some extracurricular research in Charlie's lab, found I liked that. Between my junior and senior year at Muhlenberg, I took part in a fellowship program at North Carolina State University. Mm. Uh, the uh, National Science Foundation funds these undergrad-centric research programs. You know, at schools that have, you know, p- their PhD granting schools with research departments. And the idea is to try to get them to bring in folks like me who mm. were coming from a place like Muhlenberg that mm. wasn't necessarily so research-focused. Uh, and that gives you a real chance to see what it's like to actually be operating in that sort of environment. I mean, you know, grad school is an interesting place. It's, it's I always say, not for the faint of heart. So it <laughs> gives you a chance to see if it's something that might resonate for you. And for me, it did. And so I came back to Muhlenberg. I spent a lot of time thinking about the sort of work I wanted to do in a graduate program. Um, and I ultimately wound up Going to the University of Virginia, where I worked for a fellow named James Marshall. He's a very well-known organic chemist. The focus of my doctoral work was to develop the synthesis of a class of compounds. Uh, they're referred to as natural products. These are, um, these are compounds that are extracted from natural sources found to have potentially medicinally relevant value. Typically the problem with this is that you can't get very much of it. So the first compound I made was a compound called Calistatin A. It was isolated from a sponge that was found in the Indian Ocean. I think it took 10 kilograms, I believe, of the sponge material to deliver less than half a milligram of Calistatin A. (laughs) So, you know, if if it was going to be useful, that's not a way that you can get these compounds in quantity. So that's what people like I do. We figure out how to make these things. I was at the University of Virginia for, oh, we'd been about there for about four years. And I went to a conference. uh, It's called a Gordon Conference. They're small, uh, very sub conferences, most of which occur in New England. Anyway, I was at a Gordon Conference on Natural Product Research. And this was around the time that I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And I met a guy there whose name is Paul Ryder. At that point, he had just taken over... Uh, the job of the head of drug discovery here, small molecule drug discovery here at Amgen, he had had a long and storied career at Merck. He played a real key role in the development, ultimate, ultimate commercialization of a molecule called Crixivan, which was the first HIV protease inhibitor. Um, one of the drugs that really made a big difference initially for, you know, folks who were at that point, HIV was a death sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, he was someone who's very, very well respected in the field um, for the work he did there he was starting effectively a new group here at Amgen. And so, um, you know, it seemed like an interesting opportunity. I certainly had considered the more classical big pharma type companies, you know, places like, you know, Merck or Pfizer, the, the, the sort of East coast bastions And this seemed like it might be an interesting opportunity to do something different. So I was young and, and unattached at that point. And so I said, uh, yeah, it might be interesting. So I went and, you know, talked with them at the meeting a couple of weeks later, uh, I flew out here for a job interview and, um, they made me an offer. I came out in June of the next year, and I've been here for about 16 years.
0: Wow! So this is the place that you've worked, basically. <laughs> yep,
1: yep. Since I've been this is the
0: company that you have worked at.
1: Yeah, long time to be in one place.
0: But you're here, and there must be some good reasons for it.
1: There's a couple things that really motivate me, and and I, I think it's a commoning feature. You're, you're a you you run through as scientist. You want to be in a place that you're being given opportunities to really challenge yourself to work on hard science and with the idea that you can actually deliver something that's useful at the end. I've been on a few programs at this point that have sent molecules into clinical trials, mean I can tell you in my business, when you get the email that said at 10 this morning, the first patient was dosed with your molecule, that's a big deal, oh. you know, and, and, and looking for opportunities like that is really what's kept me here.
0: What is a day for you like here? Do you, do you have a typical day, and if you do, what what is that like?
1: A, a typical day is atypical, <laughs> um, you know. So again, because of sort of the schizophrenic nature of my of my role, um, days can be very different depending upon what stage you're on a program. So one of the things you need to do as a project leader is you're the ultimate point of accountability for senior management. So if your program is coming to sort of a key stage where you need to, you know, generate data to pass through what we would call a gator or or a barrier, um, you know, a lot of my time then will be focused on preparation for those meetings, making sure we have alignment with senior management prior to the meeting. One of of the things I'd advise anyone who's in a role like this, where you have to interface with people that are far above you uh, in the organization is make sure there's no surprises. So, you know, a lot of what I do is making sure there's not going to be any surprises when we get to that stage. There's the more mundane stuff, like we have regular meetings that I have to organize and capture action items and make sure people actually act on the action items. And then there's the managerial side. You know, I still have chemists reporting to me. They do occasionally listen to my suggestions. So we have a lot of dialogue about what the most recent data tells us. And, you know, what the most logical next thing to do is as a result of the data. Um, you know, we call this in medicinal chemistry, the design cycle. So you synthesize a molecule you, 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 at some point based on another molecule you, have that you think will have improved properties. And you're going to put it through a set of assays, generate data, and then you get to the point where you can make a decision about, okay, you know, this actually was better. It wasn't, but perhaps we could, uh, we need, we need to think about this other factor now. And you go back to the beginning and design, synthesize and test, design, synthesize and test. With the idea that ultimately you get a molecule that um, has the right basket of properties to, 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 potentially be useful for human studies.
0: Are you allowed to talk about the projects that are currently being worked on here?
1: Not directly. I mean, I can, t- I can talk to you about projects that, that I've worked on in the past. Yeah, I mean, I'll say my, my group right now um, is focused exclusively on uh, oncology. It's been about the last three years I've transitioned to there, but before that I spent a number of years working in, neurodegeneration and cognition. Probably the first program I worked on there was for a target called PD-10A. This is something we've published a lot of papers on. Um, We took a molecule into phase one clinical studies. That was the first program I ever worked on that, uh, that actually got to the clinic. And from there, I worked in a couple of different programs, but then spent uh, quite a bit of time working on an Alzheimer's target called beta secretase. This is a program that, you know, we still have a a molecule in development. It's in collaboration with Novartis, a Swiss uh, pharmaceutical company. Yeah, that was my first job leading a really big chemistry program I'd, I'd run some smaller earlier stage programs oftentimes oft what will happen is when you get the initial genesis of a idea for a program which you usually try to do is set up some experiments that allow you to fail early that's the idea fail early fail often mm-hmm. what you don't want to do is you don't want to get to the point where you invested a lot of resources to run an experiment that you should have run two years before okay. right because everybody's resource constraint there's always something else we could be doing so, but that beta secretized programming, I mean, we had fifteen chemists at one point internally, probably you know a dozen supporting us from contract organizations. So that was that was my first real experience running something that large, and I I think I did reasonably well with it because it was after that that I started taking on these project leadership roles. So not just being the chemistry lead again, but 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 sort of steering the ship for the entire project team. Mm-hmm.
0: What are some of the big challenges that someone in your position
1: faces on, on the job? I think it's funny how. How much of what you deal with, I think, uh, is a manager is probably similar around careers or regardless of careers. So I mean, a lot of what you deal with is is interpersonal things and communicating data between people, making sure everybody's aligned, making sure we're pointing in the same direction that people aren't, you know, acting on agendas that aren't necessarily in the interest of the broader project team. I mean, I get to sit down and think about data, too. It's just, you know, that's actually the fun part. Yeah. Sifting through data, looking for patterns.
0: But the challenges are are more universal.
1: Uh, A lot of them are, yes. Now, I mean, the one thing that's sort of uh, unique a little bit to science that sometimes people have a hard time wrapping their head around is we fail most of the time. Right. Most ideas you have don't work uh, or they don't work out. Sometimes they fail catastrophically. Sometimes you'll work in a program for a number of years only to be derailed very late in the game. And, you know, no one's happy about that. But you, you can't really let that sort of stuff upset you as a scientist. I think you have to except the fact that success is going to be um, in small doses and you need to celebrate the successes when you do have them.
0: Sure. What's one or two things that you think might surprise people who are not doing what you do? People who think they know this industry. What do you know that you think they might not know that might be surprising?
1: I think... uh well, we have about a two percent success rate for getting compounds all the way to human, uh, you know, in the marketed stage. So we fail. When I say we fail, we fail a lot. Wow. We fail. You know, there there are late stage failures. I mean, it's it's. Um that would probably surprise me. It's even worse in your generation, like I was working with Alzheimer's. No, nobody ever succeeds there. It doesn't mean it's not worth trying, but it's right. uh, it's it's really challenging.
0: So this is not for someone who is averse to be to, to, to resilience, I guess. Yes, this yes. is not the right job for them.
1: No, and I mean it, it's even when you're successful. I mean, if you get a drug to market, if you. If I'm running a program in oncology and we design the perfect clinical trial and it's it's we can enroll patients very easily. Realistically, the the quickest time that you could probably get a Compound of market from the time I'm done with it is four or five years, and, and most of the time it's even be longer than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know that's after I'm done with it. So my team may have been working on the program for three years before we get to that stage. So right. from the time you start on something to the time you potentially know if you get that kind of payout, I mean you know I'll have more gray hairs then than that I do now. So mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a long term process, which is an interesting challenge of the industry. You know, we we try to project forward where our successes are going to be, but it's hard. Mm.
0: Now, so you're in somewhat of a a unique position in that you've spent pretty much your entire career at one company and you've been here for quite a while. So you have the vantage point of seeing the changes in your field. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's talk a little bit about that. What what big changes have you seen in your field uh, in the past? And then um, then we'll talk about what you foresee coming along.
1: I can speak to a few things. I'll talk a lot about artificial intelligence, um, and, and that can mean a lot of things. One way I've seen data science impact my field is we've gotten a lot better at developing predictive models to tell us how compounds may or may not behave well prior to being to prior to even making them. Uh, and so, what this has enabled us to do is be a bit smarter about the things we target. So maybe before we'd have to make a thousand compounds to get to a, a key milestone. Perhaps we've gotten to the point now where we can be smart enough about it to only have to make 500 to get there, which still might be a lot of compounds, but it's half the number of compounds that it was before. Mm. And I think that that type of technology is going to have a, a more pronounced impact as we move forward. How, how exactly it affects us, that that I think remains to be seen. Like any new field, there's a lot of people that go around promising a lot of things. I'm a little more skeptical, but I'm more skeptical in, in thinking that people actually know where it's going to go mm. that way. But yeah, so predictive software, I mean, there've been some really revolutionary technologies on the biological side that I think are going to allow us to potentially be better about picking the targets we work on. So one that's gotten a lot of press is a technology called CRISPR. It's a gene editing technology that's been pioneered by a a group at Berkeley and uh, the Broad Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts and, and a number of other folks. But what this allows you to do is really precise gene editing, which there are gene editing techniques that have been used previously, not with the degree of precision that CRISPR has. So it really allows you to interrogate on a cellular level what changes to individual gene expressions Will do to a cell type, and, and you know, that's the sort of thing that we look at from where, where I sit. We may not be trying to take a silence a protein from being made, but you know, we might want to inhibit or activate its function to get a certain biological response. So mm. you know, I think precision biology like that is going to allow us to be a bit better with precision medicine as a result. And then in terms of other changes. One change that's definitely affected everybody in this industry is the proliferation of the contract research organization model. So we do, you know, and this is everybody, everybody um, does a fair bit of outsourcing at this point. Mm. So word you hear in every industry. It runs the gamut. I mean, we do it from uh, synthesis uh, of compounds to companies that specialize in testing compounds. And so managing that has been a change, certainly, from where I started. And it's it's interesting. If you think about it, if you take a step back and look at it from a bit of a broader industry perspective, what the proliferation of these contract organizations have actually allowed for is, I think, the generation of a much larger nucleus of small startup biotech companies because now you don't actually need to have everything in-house to get projects going. Mm. You might have some key internal expertise and be able to externalize at least initially some of your efforts so that you can get you know proof of concept data potentially to, to convince investors to give you more money so that you can actually build real labs and start doing bigger scale work. So I think you know from a broader perspective, the, the proliferation of contract organizations has made an impact on how the field operates.
0: Um, is there anything about your job that keeps you up at night or do you manage to leave your work at
1: work? I've always been pretty good about leaving my work at work. Um, Yeah, I'd say there's only been a couple times in my career where um, I was really... Sweating things like that, and it, you know, it, it. I think for me at least, it, it's you know, you get certain stressful situations. Again, I, I mentioned, you know, I wound up having to pitch things to senior management, and that doesn't bother me so much now. But the first time you walk into that room and you see the, you know, this SVP of of research and development sitting on the other side of the desk, and you're thinking, oh, is he going to think I'm a moron because I don't <laughs> know the answer to some question he asks? You know, and and you realize eventually that you know, no one knows every answer to everything, and and it's it's not the end of the world if you can't answer everything right the first time that the thing to do is to, to know, uh, to know where to get the information or, or to, to know the people you need to talk to, to design the right experiment, to get the information.
0: Ah, you got to know the right people.
1: Networking. Yeah. That's, that's a, <laughs> that's another good feature to have.
0: Yes. We talk about it a lot at the career center.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, you can't overstate the importance of networking. I mean, the importance of networking. I mean, you, you commented that you found me on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. which, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's, um, that's how you find a lot of things. Yeah, it's a place to be. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, too, you know, that the proliferation of small companies is a very real thing. And, you know, I have um, I go to a couple of major conferences every year and there's always the who's going to have moved over the last year. You know, they go to some new startup and LinkedIn is really one of the ways that you keep an eye on that. So it's a good way to be able to keep the pulse on, on, on where your network is and, and where they're going.
0: We're on a very large campus here. Mm-hmm. It seems like uh, Amgen is, is a company that takes care of their people. Would I be right in assuming that?
1: Yeah, I, I feel I've been taking pretty good, pretty good care of here. I mean, I could say if there are major issues, I, I probably would not have been here for 16 years.
0: Right. Well, we on on the way to the room we're in now, we passed a soccer field.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What what else do uh, employees, what, what other perks do employees of Amgen get?
1: One thing that we have that is maybe a little unique in the industry is a pretty generous paid time off policy. So, you know, all new employees start with, let me think what you start with. I think you start with three weeks of vacation, but you get 17 paid holidays too. So we have, we shut down the week of the 4th of July, the week of Christmas is a company. So that's vacation that you don't have to take vacation for. So after you've been here for 16 years, I mean, I think, yeah, it's pretty generous in that regard. They really strive to push for the work-life balance thing. It's a very active, I mean, you saw the soccer fields. There's a very mm-hmm. big cycling club here, um, and there's a pretty active workforce, and, and they, they try to foster that. You know, people who, you know, enjoy life outside of work tend to be more productive at work, so it's a mm-hmm. win-win for everyone.
0: Remind me how old the company is?
1: Uh, it started in the early 1980s. Um, wow. I think it was 1981. You know, at that point, it was quite a bit smaller than it is now. Mm-hmm.
0: So obviously, we mentioned work-life balance. But what are some other things that Amgen has to do to stay ahead of the game? I mean, there's obviously some competition out there. What do you have to do so that you continue to be
1: successful? You know, we've put a lot of effort, uh, maybe maybe more than most companies. We put a lot of effort into trying to understand the role that human genetics plays in causation of disease. So we actually, a number of years ago at this point, acquired. A company called Decogenetics. Genetics. It's based in Iceland and they have uh, genotyped a large, very large portion of the Icelandic population. Um, it's, it's a very well-annotated population. People keep very good genealogical records so they know who their great-grandparents were back a long, long time and what that allows us to do is to look for very subtle genetic changes that are associated with disease. So a good example of this actually resulted uh, in a drug that was um, launched a couple of years ago here called Rapatha, which targets a protein called PCSK9, which is involved in the um, cholesterol processing pathway. This is a case where, you know, you had human carriers that had loss of function, Mm -hmm. who had very low cholesterol, gain of function, had very high cholesterol. So, you know, from a scientific perspective, you could say, okay, if we could figure out how to you know, mitigate that loss of uh, function effect, you know, you're going to lower cholesterol. And this is a case now where we have a drug that, you know, you have patients that have hypercholesterolemia. So, I mean, extremely high LDL levels, much higher than you can deal with with something like a statin, which is the standard of care for lipid issues. Mm -hmm. Now being able to drop their cholesterol to the low, low double digits, so this is a case where, you know, this human genetic insight helped drive a portfolio decision. So, mm. you know, that's a very extreme case. A lot of times they're more subtle than that. But, um, you know, that's one that, that's um, pretty well publicized.
0: What are some of your favorite parts of your job?
1: My favorite part is still um, still really designing uh, designing clever experiments to answer hard questions one of my cases that that I still take a lot of pride in was it was when we were working on our, the beta secretase program for Alzheimer's disease, there was a, another uh, protein in the pathway. So we were targeting base one as the protein. There's another protein called base two that is involved in uh, pigmentation. And our concern was that if you blocked this protein for a long period of time, you know, pigmentation is pretty important for things like, um, skin health, if do something that it affected the proteins in your melanosomes, which are responsible for helping protect you from the sun. So the thought was, you know, this might not be a desirable feature if you're going to put somebody on this drug for a long time to have an effect on pigmentation. Mm. Okay. So we, we developed a, a biochemical assay, to show that we'd achieve selectivity, you know, in a little you know, plastic dish for the one protein or the other. But the question was, how do we measure this, you know, in a more meaningful setting? And we actually uh, devised a method. What's cool about it was non-terminal. I mean, you know, you wind up having to do animal studies. This was a study where we actually, we took advantage of this color change and, and actually just quantified it using a high-spectrum camera um, and we saw compounds that weren't selective turn the animals white and ones that didn't kept them black. And we actually had really nice dose response curves for this. And like I said, it was it was great. It was non-terminal. A team won a, an award for um, optimal usage of, of animal models. And I think I'm the only chemist at Amgen to ever win that award. So that's uh, wow. something I, I take some pride in, you know. And that was a case really, again, of knowing who to talk to. So we were discussing this in a core team meeting and I said, this is black and white. This should, be a, this should be a way to do this. So I went and talked to the, the fellow who was in charge of our bioassay group. And I said, what, you know, what do you think? Who should I talk to about this? And he said, there's an engineer over at automation group who would probably be the one who could help you with this. And again, it's just being able to tap into that network, mm. um, sort of your internal network here mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and figure out who you need to pull together to design the key experiment.
0: So being here for 16 years is a, an advantage in a lot of ways. You get to know people.
1: Yeah, you can. You can. You know, and things change. I mean, you know, the the, most of the people that were here when I started aren't here anymore. I mean, Mm -hmm. you turn over like anything else. So, but yeah, you do get to learn sort of where, and I mean, it's, it's important for what I do now as a program lead, know which parts of the organization can, can give you what and who you need to align with to, to be able to pull in the resources to do some of these more challenging experiments. I actually do take a lot of satisfaction in, in people managing, you know, particularly with regards to helping people advance their careers and f- trying to figure out what they want to do, what's going to motivate them. Ah. Um, but yeah, there's you know there's the invariable forms that come with that that it can be a bit um, laborious. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. The bureaucracy is always mm. always gonna no no Anywhere. one likes that. No one likes that unless they're in HR, I guess. I don't know.
0: <laughs> All right, cool. If a student at Muhlenberg or elsewhere wants to pursue type of work that you're doing here at Amgen, what are some of the things you think they should know right now?
1: It's very competitive. Mm -hmm. um, And it's very important if you're going to pursue a graduate degree in chemistry that you work for the right group. You want to work for someone who's well-funded, who has the sort of connections with industry to help position you when it comes time to look for a job, it can be very competitive. So what I would recommend people do if they think they have an inkling in this, talk to your professors at Muhlenberg. They've all come from institutions like this themselves. Um, You know, they may not be as used to seeing people that are interested in that at a place like Muhlenberg, but most of them are doing some sort of research. Just get your foot in the door with that. And then I would say, look for opportunities potentially with summer internships or programs like I was involved with NC State to to try to bolster your resume a little bit like that. Sure. I think that the, you know, at least in chemistry, when I was at Muhlenberg, the the classroom education part was top notch. I mean, you have to take qualifying exams when you get to graduate school. Most people don't pass most of them. I passed them all and I was I was a good student. But I mean, the the fact that I passed a physical chemistry, a qualifying exam kind of surprised even me. (laughs) Um, So um, what you want to do is position yourself so that, that when you're looking at your graduate schools and you know one of these faculty members that has high-profile research as well-funded is going to say, "Oh yes, uh, student X, this person has done some interesting things. Look like they could make some contributions to my lab. I'm, I'm willing to let them in." Because ultimately, they're the ones who wind up paying for you to go to school, right? Uh, sure. You know, you're, you're you're typically funded through grant support from the faculty member, so they're obviously looking for people that can come in and continue to produce on the research side and continue to keep the funding stream going. So, mm-hmm. So that's a big thing. And then, you know, it, as soon as you can, as soon as you get in that sort of environment, you want to network, network, network. <laughs> somebody comes uh, from Amgen or Merck to give a talk at your university. You should try to get to know that person. One thing I didn't say is is the one of the reasons I got into that conference I went to between my fourth and fifth year is that there was... An alumnus from the University of Virginia's chemistry department who came back, he was uh, a process scientist at Merck, um, gave a talk. I got to know him fairly well. And at one point he said, why don't you you know apply for this conference? I know the chair. I'll put in a good word for you. You know, that's networking from an early stage paying right. off for me. So you can't overemphasize that. We didn't have LinkedIn back then. LinkedIn's <laughs> great. You know, mm-hmm. ways to keep track of your networks is great. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's what I'd recommend. And reach out. I mean, I know there's other... There's other alumni in the sciences that that you can probably get a hold of. I mean, there's people that have done, you know, have gone. We haven't even talked about the academic career option. I mean, I actually gave some thought to I was always more focused on research. I I, I did give some thought to, you know, sort of pursuing academic careers at, at research centric um, institutions, but ultimately I thought this was a better fit for the type of work I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm interested in the multidisciplinary work and and not necessarily focusing on my own lab's work exclusively. So, um, yeah.
0: Is there anything you feel you should have done differently when you were starting out?
1: Hmm. That's a good question. Um, If anything, I I think I would have tried to network a bit more earlier when I was a graduate student, um, (gasps) going to more conferences, just trying to build up your 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 collection of contacts i mean things worked out fairly well for me there was some aspect of fortuitousness which is probably the case for a lot of people but if you if you spend some time working at networking the opportunity for those kind of fortuitous interactions will just increase i mean it just the probability will go up yeah
0: you gotta you gotta put yourself in the position to be the lucky person yeah
1: absolutely. that's what i
0: tell my students and and alums as well
1: good advice as far as i'm concerned
0: This episode of 2400 Chew was produced by me, Tammy Katsoff, Associate Director of the Muhlenberg College Career Center. It was recorded on location and engineered by Paul Kremposky at the studios of WMUH, Allentown, Pennsylvania. Our opening and closing music from Cowboy Bebop is performed by the Muhlenberg College Jazz Big Band.